0: This is typically the passage that is taught during that time to where uh, this is a a week before uh, the resurrection of the Son of God, King Jesus. And so uh, this is actually the day that John goes out of its way to specify that this is five days before the Passover. And that's significant for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons is this is the day that they set aside lambs Uh, to be the Passover lamb, because they had to look and make sure that the Passover lamb was spotless and without wrinkle and without blemish. And so that's interesting that Jesus came in on this day, and uh, Jesus was getting a lot of notoriety during this time, as you can imagine. If you've been with us for a while, or you know kind of how the the flow of the Gospel of John, you notice that uh, right before this, in chapter 11— uh, Jesus had been doing a lot of miraculous things. He'd been teaching all over the, all, all over the area. He, he'd be, he had virtually healed so many sick people uh, that uh, uh, some scholars that I read this week said that uh, there was no more chronic illnesses throughout the entire region of Judea. And so just think about that. How remarkable! How remarkable! Uh, his notoriety was building and forming, and uh, then he did something really crazy, which was he made uh, a blind man from birth see, and then right after that, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so the, the, the crescendo of his awesomeness was building over and over and over again to this moment, and then we see the spillover of it in our passage. So they took off palm, brand, palm trees, and they met him crying, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And that's really what Palm Sunday is about. Palm Sunday is about preparation and preparing for the King, the King. And so my thesis today is kind of this. I'm trying to get us to understand that what we're looking for in this life, whether you're religious or irreligious, is you're looking for the good and beautiful King, you're looking for a king that uh, can hold intention, both strength, both strength and compassion at the same time. So, who is ferocious and bold and invincible on the battlefield, but yet lovely and beautiful and approachable in every in everyday life? And uh, I, I think uh, I, I don't really like to talk about politics, um, especially from this platform, because there's so much like the the, the political. The system that we're in right now is so complex, and it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to be able to present a fair and accurate uh, treatise of what's going on in today's political culture. So, know that I'm not trying to be political at all, but I think it's just appropriate whenever we are trying to identify uh, is Jesus the true king and what we're looking for in our humanity here in American politics. Because in our politics today, they're more polarized than ever before. I think we, that's non-controversial right there, right? Like we're more polarized than we've ever been uh, absolutely before. And the majority of people, especially starting back in 2016, are no longer trying to be defined by political party. Like, man, I'm just really jazzed about this political party. I'm really jazzed about this political party. No, we're we're more kind of looking at our different leaders that are running. And we're trying to say, like, do I, will I follow that leader, yes or no? Will I follow this leader, yes or no? And so I, I read a couple of things uh, this week that said more registered Democrats uh, in the 2016 election voted for Trump than ever – than than any other uh, political candidate ever before. And so that's interesting, right? Because there was something that was appealing, there was something that was appealing to the 2016 candidate, candidate Trump. And then it also said that more in 2020, more registered Republicans voted um, non-Republican than ever before in the, in the 2020 election. And so like, what, like, what is that? What's, like, what's going on? And if you look at, kind of, if, unless you've been, like, just moved here, and you've been gone for 10 years, like, this is kind of, this is kind of the, the place uh, that we're at. Trump was absolutely hated by the media and the majority of Democrats. Why? Because of, again, this is simplistic, because of his lack of compassion, right? He was seen as a brute. He was seen as a brute. And when, that wasn't, enough, like, it wasn't enough for him to seem strong on the campaign, Campaign we wanted them also to be strong and righteous, strong and gentle and on the other side, uh, with President Biden now, whenever he campaigned, he campaigned as a moderate but he was presented as weak and declining over here. And so we're like, oh, he has the compassion that we desire as a society, but he, he's lacking some of these attributes that are over there on the other side. And so we're bo- we wanted both and, we wanted uh, the mixture of the two candidates. We wanted a mixture, we wanted Trump with compassion, or we wanted Biden with strength, but we didn't get those things. We didn't get those things at all, and my question is this: Where does that impulse come from? Whenever we're thinking about the true king, now let's chill out about the politics because that's not even the point. I'm just trying to make, I'm just trying trying to um, make a point. Everyone, take a deep breath. Like we're like, oh man, you mentioned Trump, and I'm like stressed out now. So stop it, stop it. Where does that impulse come from? Where does the impulse come from? Why do we want compassion and strength at the exact same time? Why do we want gentleness? gentleness and uh, invincibility at the same time where does this come from here's my point I think it comes from the idea of the true king the idea of the true king and here in the west and by west I mean western culture we're constantly looking for the true king we're constantly looking for someone that's strong in battle but yet whenever he wins wins is compassionate to his enemies to bring, to bring them close and to welcome them into his kingdom. And so we want the bravest and the sweetest. We want courage and compassion. We want Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, right? That's what we want. We, we want Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, who is absolutely in, uh, impossible to beat in battle, but yet there's constant these side uh, love stories surrounding him constantly. He's so sweet. He's so sweet to the uh, the women that adore that that adore him, and all of this stuff. We want we want Aslan, right? Uh, we want the idea of our leaders in our society to be like Aslan, who who Aslan, he slayed ferociously the ice queen and at the same time uh, died sacrificially for Edmund the traitor. This is what we want. This is what we, why are these two uh, depictions of a king the most normative, the most normative representation of what a true leader, what a true king, what a true, um, what a true God is? Why, why do we combine these two things? Why do we combine these two things? Because the reality is this. Anytime we look for a true king here on earth, anytime we say, oh, like this person has the strength that I want, they typically don't, it's never coupled with the gentleness. Or whenever the person has the compassion, they're, they're maybe a wimp over here for some, one reason or another. Why, why are we constantly trying to look um, for these two natures to be, become, become one? Because it seems like the human nature cannot handle this. The human nature just can't handle these two attributes at the exact same time. Many of you know the story of Louis Zamberini, who was a great war hero in World War II. He was captured by, uh, he has an amazing story. Laura Hildebrand wrote a, uh, a biography about him. Um, called Unbroken. They also made him. I think Angelina Jolie made a movie about it. Don't watch the movie, read the book. I'm just going to say that out loud. Uh, that's probably universally true for a lot of things. Read the book, because in the book, what you see is whenever he got home from his captivity, he turned into a monster, an absolute monster. And there was multiple times that he would wake up from his wife screaming from him hurting, physically hurting her, and not even, not even knowing why. He was a raging alcoholic afterwards and so we know that even our greatest war heroes can't be the sweetest whenever they get back now there's more to that story look it up but it's not my main point today all right (laughs) Um, and some of y'all know um, how that story ends but even our greatest war heroes can't can't get it together PTSD is rampant within our culture um, for our our heroes that are going off to war okay so why do we expect this And why does it seem to never come? And we expect it because of Revelation chapter 5, right? Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 says this. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he's talking about this conquering king, right? This conquering king uh, at the end of the cosmos. And then verse 6, the very next verse says, and between the throne, looking at the conquering king, the lion of Judah among the elders I saw a lamb standing there he was expecting to see the lion of Judah and what did he see he saw a lamb and that's the mixture of the two that's that's meek and lowly and gentle and at the same time the conquering king coming together in one person the same person this is a very Christian idea you don't get this from any other myth, mythology, or, or religion in the world. You get this idea of the true, ideal, conquering king is also gentle lowly. Gentle and lowly. And the person of this that it's found in is primarily Jesus. It's primarily Jesus. And so this is the king we want. And let me tell you how Jesus exhibits this in this text. First off, we see the lowliness of Jesus. The lowliness of Jesus. Notice what he's riding in on. See, the, the people were already ramped up, as I was saying earlier. They were excited about what was going on. Why? Because Jesus had healed everyone, and they virtually knew someone that had, that had been healed by Jesus. They, had story, they heard jo- stories about Jesus, and then at the, same, at the same time, then he rose Lazarus from the dead, and so they were ready to make him the king. And so what do kings do? What do kings do during this time? They find the biggest, baddest, widest horse, war horse that they can find, and they come trampling into, into the city that they, want, uh, that they desire to um, be enthroned upon. The same throne that King David wa- was enthroned upon, right? He comes riding into Ju- Jerusalem. But what did Jesus choose to do? He condescended. He condescended, and why did he condescend? He condescended because uh, the Jews should have known Zechariah 9-9. The Israelite people should have known Zechariah 9-9, which was actually the fulfillment of this prophecy right here, and and, 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 uh, the passage actually says a little bit of that. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He comes humble. He comes meek and lowly, he comes gentle. He comes very, very gentle. Why is he doing this? Yes, he, he said, it says he's coming as a conquering king, we need him to slay the Goliaths in our life, but, but right here he comes as a gentle man, riding on the colt of a donkey. Why is that? Because he wanted to condescend so that we would pay attention and come to him. My mom always tells me the story of, um, of some of her uncles that she, that she had or cousins that she had that, were, um, that all played in the NFL. And they were, these were the Brooks brothers. And I have a son named Brooks, um so go figure. And um, the Brooks brothers were giant men. They were six foot eight and down, six foot eight to six foot four. They all played for the Green Bay Packers. A couple of them played for the Chicago Bears. And so they were ferocious men. And my mom always told me the story of how she was scared, how she was scared to go up to them. Why? Because they're massive men, 300 pounds, six foot eight. People are like, hey, little Mitzi, come up, come like, come over here. And like, oh, no, that's, that's scary. That's scary. So they had to get down, they had to get down and condescend on her level so that they, they wouldn't just tower over her, and then that was the invitation. That was the invitation for her to approach. What is Jesus doing? If Jesus came in here on a war horse and said that the only way to conquer death is through me, you have to come to me, and he presented himself as the invincible, as the invincible conquering king who can defeat sin and defeat death, if he did that and that alone, how could we approach him? How could we approach him? Have you ever, have you ever uh, seen one of your heroes before? Have you ever had the opportunity? Let's think of it like a celebrity hero or something like that. Um, I, I had the opportunity. I have weird celebrity heroes. They're like pastors of books that I've read and stuff like that. And so probably not y'all, y'all too, maybe, uh, maybe a couple of y'all. Um, but there was this one time that my wife and I, we were at a conference and uh, it was a youth ministry conference, I was a youth minister at the time, and there was a guy that just wrote a book that I was loving, it was called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know For Sure That You Can Be Saved, by a guy named J.D. Greer, and he was speaking at this conference, and I was expecting this conference to be really big, but it was about the size of our congregation today. And so there was an opportunity, he, he said at the end of his talk, of one of the, the things, like, hey, come up, I'd love to talk to you and stuff, and stuff." And he was like, dude, like, go talk to him. And just sweat, just immediate sweat begin to fill every part that you can sweat on, on my body. I was so unbelievably nervous. And that's not, that's not normal. I, like I remember going uh, to, to Midwestern State with my dad whenever, we were, uh, whenever I was a little kid. And I remember seeing Michael Irving and Troy Aitman and Emmett Smith just walk by. I was like, oh, cool. Michael, what's up, dude? Hey, Troy, Troy, come over here. So I, like this was weird for me. This was weird for me, but it was because I held him in such um, such high honor that I, I felt like I couldn't even approach him. He seemed like other, other, that I couldn't go to, that I couldn't go to him. And, and then, this is what's amazing, is I went to a different conference in North Carolina. Different conference in North Carolina. Tim Keller was there and J.D. Greer was there. I went to an outbreak session, and you know who walked up to me? J.D. Greer. He walked up to me. I eventually got the courage to talk to him. Like, oh, hi, hi, You like your book. You know, like that's pretty much all I said. But J.D. Greer came up to me and spoke to me, and we had a long conversation. He goes, are you a member of this church? Your face looks so familiar. I was like, oh, actually, I saw you. And we talked back in 2014, I think, and it was cool. Like, I still like your book. You know, like I was just, I was real real pumped. But it was easier to talk to him. Why? Because he approached me. He came up to me. He he was interested in talking to me, and what we see here, Jesus coming gentle and lowly, down on our level. Is he saying, "Hey, the way to beat death, the way that I'm going to be the conquering king, is that I'm going to get down on your level, and you're going to have to come, you're going to have to come to me. And whenever you come to me, guess what? Uh, uh, and you recognize that I am, I am the substitute that you ultimately desire." Yes, it's amazing. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's other. And yes, he's doing the one thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. But yet he says, you can come to me. I got on your level. I, I left heaven for you. I, I did not come riding in on a white horse conquering death and sin because in, in such a way to where I would obliterate you, I said, I will do everything necessary so that you feel comfortable coming to me how great is this God how great is this God he came as a substitute and John Knox John Knox talks about the importance of a substitute in this quote and it's, it's amazing he says this the essence of sin is substituting ourself for God and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us see we choose our sin over God God chose us God chose us and condescended and substituted himself in our place. This is, this is the greatness of our God. And earlier I mentioned that five days before was kind of like the idea, idea of uh, setting aside the Passover lambs. You see, the Pharisees were questioning him over these next five days. They were questioning him. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all you see is Jesus in the the temple being questioned by the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were trying to catch him in all these weird little things, you know, like riddle me this, Lord, like uh, uh, a wife has seven seven husbands and they all die. And he's doing this and with profound wisdom, he keeps on just destroying all of their arguments. What are they doing? They're examining the Lamb of God. They were seeing if he had any spot or any wrinkle in those five days that he was here that started here on this Palm Sunday was pointing that he was truly the substitute lamb of God and the conquering king at the same time. He took on our death. He died. He died for traitors that chose their sin over him. And then it says what's so amazing in verse 13, or excuse me, in verse 16, it said that the disciples didn't really understand what all this was about. Lord, why are you doing it this way? Is it at this point that you're going to restore the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to do it this way? And it said, after, after he was glorified, meaning after he had resurrected from the dead, they remember that these things had been written about him and had to be done to him. They had to recognize that the only way to approach the king, the true king, is if he condescended and became the lamb. That's, that's what we see here in his lowness, in Jesus' lowness, but we also see His highness as well. Obviously, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a powerful. Uh, they're trying to th- enthrone him as, as king and what they recognize that the only, that the highest way that he is going to be exalted is through his lowering of himself. He became a servant so that we would hail him as king. And that it's ultimately his lowness that brings him the most high. And that principle is still true today. The servant leader is the one that we respect the most, the one that is washing feet, the the one that is condescending, to bring other, other people up, to not just spur forward in their leadership and say, follow me up this hill, but the one that says, let's all go together. Those are the men and the women that lead and transform and change society. And so this is the picture of the true king, high but low, low but high, at the same, at the same time, uh, invincible able to take on the core parts of who we are, but at the same time, compassionate, kind, gentle, meek, so that we can come to him and approach him in our everyday life. You see, if you see God, if you see God as so holy and so righteous as you should, but you see him as that makes him dwell in an unapproachable light, that whenever you sin, you won't run to him. You have to remember the completeness of who Christ is, The completeness of who he is. He's the lamb that was sacrificed in your place. So you can run to him. You can go to him, even whenever you sin, because he's casted as far as the east is from the west. So you might be saying, Cody, okay, I get it. Like, good thesis. I I got the whole idea. Low and high, high and low, compassionate and invincible, the true king, all of that. Now let's apply it. Let's apply it. Because what we want, we don't just want this king reigning over our society... We don't just see it broken in different aspects, especially within our politics. Well, I want my leader to be like this. I want my leader to be like this. We're like, obviously, we want Jesus to be our leader. <laughs> um, that, that is obvious by the brokenness that it manifests and the polarization that's going on. How do we apply it today? Can you have the kingdom of God reigning in your own heart? And the answer is yes, of course. And the, I, don't, I can't think of a better passage to complement this than 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, Christ's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So let's talk to ourselves. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? Notice he doesn't say you are a priest. He says you belong to a priesthood. What does that tell us primarily? It tells us that we belong to a community. We have to belong to a community. We cannot read the Bible. Redeemer Church, look at me. We cannot read the Bible as if this is something that's talking to me right now. No, oftentimes whenever we read the Bible, we have to see it in the context of God formulating the people, not persons, of God. The people, not persons, of God. And so we are to do this together. There is a one another there, there, is a, there is a unity, there is a contin- continuity on, very, on a variety of different levels that we have to see here. But the first thing we should see here is what does the priesthood do? If you look at the Old Testament, it informs exactly what we are to do. We are to intercede for one another. We're to pray for each other. We're to pray for each other. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. And we are, Jesus is Lord. And we are to follow him in his ways, and because that, and be, because of that, we are to pray as Jesus prays for us. Uh, you see, it's not good enough for us to be super gung ho about the mission of God. Uh, Peter was super gung ho about the mission of God, and remember how Jesus rebuked Peter? Oh, Peter, yeah, yeah, hear you, bud. I hear that. You, how excited you are? Super pumped, super pumped. But let me tell you, Satan would shift you like wheat. I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad, all right? I don't know what it means, but it sounds bad. Satan would do that to you, but don't worry. What? I have prayed for you. I have paid, prayed for you. So how many people in your life right now, how many people in your life right now say, I would not make it without their prayers? I would not make it without your prayers. See, um, whenever I went to a, uh, a pastor's retreat, uh, through what's called the Redeemer Network, which is a network of church-planting churches that uh, was part of sending me sending me out, and I'm super thankful for those brothers. But one of the questions that I got over and over again, uh, because uh, Redeemer Church here has kind of grown quickly uh, to a certain mass, and uh, everyone was kind of recognizing that by... Um, people within the network uh, were a network of primarily smaller churches, um, from probably Christian culture standpoint, um, to where uh, Christian culture thinks that every church should be on their way to being a mega church or you're not really a church. Um, I think that's silly. But uh, several of my friends just said, "Hey, how, how are you? How are you growing?" And I just said, um, "Man, I, I don't really know. But I tell you this: it just seems like..." people all around me are just praying for Redeemer Church. How are we healthy? How are, how are we pursuing Christ? How are we growing in different um, demographics within the city? Like, it just seems like God is just answering prayer after prayer after prayer. And that and that was my answer, and I still feel like that today. I still feel like that today, just like people are, people are praying. People are praying. And that's what we are called to do. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 32 says this, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. By ceasing to pray for you. There's one thing I want to be known for as a church. I want to be known as a people of God that pray, that deeply pray, that are known for our devotion to prayer. And I hope that is, hope that is your desire too. Samuel Chadwick, that great Methodist preacher, said this. He said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing a prayerless Bible study, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles whenever we pray. We are to be a royal priesthood under the King, King Jesus who is praying and interceding for us right now. Let's be like our king. Let's be like our Lord. And thus entering, um, bringing the kingdom from heaven down here to earth. The second thing that we see here uh, in order to be a kingdom under the king is we're to be a holy nation. Now this word nation is ethnic. Uh, uh, we're, We're to be a holy ethnic group. And you say, Cody, well, like, aren't there different Aren't there different ethnic groups around? Yeah, but this is teaching us something very, very primary. And what it's teaching us primarily is that whenever you become a Christian, you are not a uh, German Christian. You're not an American Christian. You're not an Italian Christian. You are a Christian first in everything that you do. That you are now, that you're uh, becoming a believer in Jesus, following him means that you are now your primary identity, Christ and Christ alone. And so uh, it takes precedent over all other identities. And so if you're putting something in front, oh, I'm I'm just a Baptist Christian, or I'm a Pentecostal Christian, or I'm, I'm a Methodist before I'm a Christian, or I'm a Presbyterian before, like stop all that, stop all that. And let's just say we're devoted to King Jesus. And, and he's the one that gets to name me. He's the one that gets to uh, identify who I, who I am. And this idea of being a, a, an entirely new, holy, set-apart ethnic group means this, that it transforms everything that we are. It transforms our time management. It transforms uh, who we eat dinner with. It transforms how we spend our money. it transforms our gender roles, our values. It tr- transforms everything within our culture. Why? What's the governing principle? The word of God. God has spoken to us. He's our Lord. He, he speaks, and we say, "Oh, because He's Lord, I want to do what it says." And so uh, that's why we need uh, the people of God, not persons of God, to work to work this out. This is why God gives shepherds and teachers within every single congregation to say, hey, walk with God, delight in him, look at the scriptures, look at the scriptures, obey them in their plain understanding, obey them in their plain understanding, devote yourself to them, and then say, because Jesus is Lord, he gets to reshape our culture, he reshapes our identity, everything revolves around him. This is called bringing in the kingdom of God bringing in the kingdom of God. We're not shaped by the culture. We don't have to engage with everything that the culture is actually saying. No, this is the way. This is the way over here. We We can stand on the rock of salvation, the rock of ages, King Jesus, and say, no, thus saith the Lord, due to his word, and we're a people guided by his spirit to walk with him in truth and by his spirit. So we are to not create subcultures, a Christian subculture, we're to create a real Christian culture here as local churches within the community. You know the difference between those two? A subculture is this, there's a lot of comedic subcultures. So whenever I say things like bears, beets, okay, that's a subculture, all right? Uh, every like a lot of people they weren't ready for it but they were like oh this is my moment (laughs) I'm preaching now Battlestar Galactica right Um, uh, what is that that's a subculture that have identified we think this is funny uh, all all comedic roads lead right back to Scranton Pennsylvania in the office, all right, and that is a subculture. There's other subcultures before that. Seinfeld was a subculture, MASH was a subculture, and everyone kind of filtered their comedy lens through these, uh, these different avenues. But that's just a subculture. That's one aspect of your life. The Christian is not called to do that. We, we belong to the holy ethnic of God, the holy nation of God, a new culture centered on, centered on the kingdom of Christ, and Christ being the king. Meaning, meaning just simply this, he changes He changes everything, changes absolutely everything. And what happens a lot of times, especially here in the Bible Belt, is we divide ourselves by preferences of Christian subculture. Where well, I like this style of worship. I like this style of preaching. I like this style of small group. I like this style of whatever. And we, we segment ourselves off and, like, oh, I can only belong to this group over here because of this subcultural thing that I have put as preeminent in my life. As, and what that does is it's, it, it hinders you. It hinders you from being transformed and changed by the uh, stewardship of grace that God has established within local churches. To be devoted to Scripture together, to be um, pursuing Christ together, to be on His mission together. All of these things we are to do together. Listen, that's why, that's why uh, the primary thing that we get uh, a, a whole lot of slack about, or at least people question um, our, our staff primarily about, is why, why do y'all put such a huge emphasis on church membership? One, I don't think we put a ton of emphasis on church membership. Um, number one. Um, but we do want our people to be members, if you're here and you don't belong to a local church, I think it's important for you to say, I belong to this local church. Uh, and what, what is that, what are you asking God to do? God, at this local church, will you teach me the truth of who you are in a deeper way than I've ever known? Will you set me forth on the mission of God that you've established for every generation and every culture? And will you send me out with these people to hold me accountable and live out the pra- and practice the one another's the way that you, through your word, call me to do? Call me to do. If, if we are segmented by subcultures within the, um, the Christian life, listen, we're losing the vitality in the life, the zoe, the life which is truly life that God wants for us. Because God calls us, God calls us to overall culture, overall Christian culture to where everything in our life has a brand new, brand new ethnic. We are a holy nation called before God. So have you jumped in with two feet? Have you jumped in with two feet? If it's not here, that's cool. I want you to be devoted somewhere to where you're fully known and fully loved. Some place that you can confess your sin and also be held accountable. Where is that? Where is that? Who are you devoted to prayer with? Um, who do you who do you come come corporately and say uh, Jesus is King and we worship Him in spirit and truth? Yeah, sure. Uh, the style of preaching isn't the way that I like, or maybe the style of worship isn't the way that I like, or maybe even the style of the room isn't the way that I like. I like Gothic style. I don't like gymnasium. You know, I don't like it. I don't like it. Man, you're you're missing out on what God is actually calling you to to belong, to be known, to be loved. And so that's why we put an emphasis on all all of these things. We don't want to be dogmatic on things that the Bible are not dogmatic about. I think the the Bible is super clear. Who you're walking with Jesus with, who you're living on mission with, who you're worshiping with weekly um, should be the the people that you are uh, shaping your entire, entire life around. And so uh, that's number two. That's a holy, I think, uh, uh, last couple of ones right here. Real quick. Number three, we are a people. If you want to belong to the kingdom, you have to recognize that you're a people for his own possession. See, the king, whenever he's in charge of everything, guess what? He's in charge of it all. He owns it all. He owns the land. He owns uh, the uh, uh, the stuff over here. He owns the fields. He owns everything. The king is in charge of everything. But the king also has a bedroom. And inside the bedroom, he puts his treasured possessions, probably on a shelf somewhere, that he says, I love and I'm devoted to. And the Bible says that's you. The Bible says that's you. Imagine uh, you're a college student getting paid $30,000 a year, and you're probably like, a college student making $30,000? That's amazing. Like, (laughs) that's awesome. Um, And uh, someone gives you a piece of jewelry, that Jesse appraises, and, uh, and Jesse looks at it, and he's like, oh my gosh, this is worth at least $300 million. $300 million. And you're just a college student making $30,000 a year. Um, how are you going to treat, how are you going to think about that piece of jewelry that, you, that you've been gifted? You're going to be like, uh... Safety deposit box. I'm getting a safe, burying it underground. Like I'm, I'm, I love it. I, I'm going to keep it, the most prized thing that I've ever. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to be overjoyed by it. And Jesus says that that's how He thinks about you. listen. I'm your, I'm your pastor. All the problems in your life right now, your anxiety, your fear, your shame, your guilt that you're experiencing. All of it. You know, what, you know why you're experiencing that? It's because you have not believed that truth deep in your heart. That, that God looks at you and says, My treasured possession. The same way you get handed a $30 million piece of jewelry and his gift. That's how God looks at you. All of your fears, all your anxieties are all due to be. I don't really believe that. I don't really believe that. And you know that, you know that to be true. Because what would happen to your heart if you knew the king of everything said, I treasure you? I treasure you. A couple of weeks ago, I said that the essence of Christianity is personal pronouns. Do you believe in the truths of the Bible, or do you believe that the truths of the Bible were done for you? Wh- which is it? Do you belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Do you know that He that, that you are the apple of His eye? And how does that compel you forward? How does that call you, cause you to worship? How does it call you to cause you to weep? And, and until, until you get there, until you get there, the kingdom of God is never going to be working in a transformative way in your life. It can't. Because you have to believe the truths. You have to believe the truths of the gospel. You are his treasured possession. Do you believe that? And, and, and you know the end of that verse, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You think you need compulsion to go and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light if you believed in your heart of hearts that he, he, he has placed you as the apple of your eye, apple of his eye? And no way. Absolutely No way. Oh, we don't need vision, we don't need rah-rah speeches, we just need to believe this. That the, the king of everything, the lion and the lamb, looks at those that have faith in Jesus and says, mine, my child, come to me over and over and over again. You're my treasured possession. You're the most prized piece of all of my kingdom. And whenever you believe that, dear friends, man, watch out when shall falls. It will be impossible to go to hell in which shall falls if he does that just with a handful of us. I'm going to say that again. It will be impossible to go to hell in which shall falls if we believe this with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can we beg God, beg God to put this deep in our heart, to give us faith upon faith upon faith in this truth so that we're never the same. Amen? Let's pray.